The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. Go to Romans chapter 8 in your, in your Bibles, and we're going to look at a passage in Romans 8 um, tonight, uh, verses 19 through 23. If you're just joining us for the first time, we're going through kind of a overview of the scriptures and understanding the scriptures. We've talked about context and historical context and how to understand the Bible, how to read the Bible, um, what the Bible is as it tells us and explains that to us. And now we're going through the narrative, the story of the Bible, and uh, just entitled the series, Rightly Dividing, as God tells us to understand the scriptures. Sometimes people find it daunting when they open the Bible because they don't understand what they're reading and, and why it's there and what these collection of stories are and and how they all fit together in the greater narrative of the scriptures, because the Bible is one story. It, it's not a bunch of stories. It's one story. God is telling one story of redemption and uh, the coming of his son to redeem us. Uh, and sometimes we kind of break the, the Bible up, or we even remove the Bible from its context. And sometimes we can even be guilty of changing what the Bible's meanings are to fit our own narratives, but we've been looking, or we were looking the last time that we met at Genesis chapter 3 and the fall, and uh, we talked about a few things, but the first thing, obviously, when we come into the garden is uh, that things turn ugly, there's this deadly choice, um, humanity turns against God, and, and we talked about that, I'm not going to go back through all of that because that was a longer uh, lesson that we talk, talked about with the serpent, the devil coming, tempting Eve, Adam, remember we talked about where Adam was, we don't really know exactly, but other than what the scriptures tell us, with her and uh, there at some point, um, and Adam is not deceived, Eve is, they both willfully uh, sin, and uh, there's a disobedience, and so mankind turns against God, they're tempted by the devil to do so, the devil questions God and his motives and his motivations for uh, telling them not to eat of the fruit of the garden, uh, the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And um, so there's this new normal now that we're living in, and that is that God stands against humanity. And so verses 8 and 9 of Genesis 3 are haunting, because if we look at Genesis 3, verses 8 and 9, the Bible says, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord. He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. And God calls to the man, he calls to Adam, and what does he say? Adam, where are you? And so he calls out, and um, God's not asking Adam, where are you, out of ignorance. He's the omnipresent and omniscient Lord. This is a question, um, God calling Adam and Eve to account for their actions and what they've done. And so Adam gets an opportunity to answer, to tell the truth. What, what have they done? But he deflects his responsibility. What does he do first? He blames his wife, right? We never do that. None of us ever deflect our responsibility and blame others. Uh, he blames his wife. He also hints in his blaming of Eve that somehow God was ultimately to blame because he says, the woman that you've given me. So ultimately, it's her, but also it's you because you gave her to me. And so, you know, you're the source of my sorrow in this, in this sense. And um, boy, that, that narrative is, is something that I think we go through all the time when we sin, when we do wrong, and when conviction sometimes sets in and we're in denial 
Um, we blame other people. We blame our situations. We blame where we came from. We blame ultimately God um, for all the things that we're facing, the things that we're going through. And um, then he, he says, he heard God in the garden. He's afraid. Why? Because he's naked. And so God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you uh, eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from, right? So he asked him that question, and he says, the woman you put me here with, she gave me uh, fruit from the tree. He ate it, and he says to the woman, what is it that you've done? And she says, what? The serpent deceived me, and then I ate it. So she blames the devil. She blames the serpent. You never blame the devil for when you sin, right? It's always him. It's his fault, right? It's never your fault. And how many know the right answer would have been, I have sinned. I've done wrong. Um, And I've sinned according to your word because I rebelled against you. And I deserve to die. I deserve the consequences. Please forgive me. How many know that that would have been the right response? The, the, The asking of forgiveness. But instead, Adam pins his sin on God and on Eve And our pervasive internal corruption and perversity are so clear in that moment because in Adam all die. Wherefore is by one man, Romans tells us, sin enters into the world and death by sin. So death passes on what? All men, for that all have sinned. And how many know that's the truth tonight? We've all sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. There's none of us righteous, not a single one of us. And Romans tells us that we're all without excuse and we're all guilty before God. And that's the truth about mankind, because since that moment, since that day, all of us were born with this sin nature, this propensity, this, this sin nature, this, this desire in us to rebel against the Word of God and what God says to us, and also a belief in us that things are going to turn out good for us even when we disobey God. Because if we didn't think that good would come to us, as a result of our sin, we wouldn't do it to begin with. We actually believe that we know better than God when we sin, that we have a better way, that God is somehow trying to keep things from us by having these laws, these rules, some pleasure that we should have, some enjoyment we should have, some knowledge we should have, some experience we should have that God is keeping us from us. You don't ever remember thinking that way when you're a teenager and your parents had rules, right? That your parents were somehow just trying to keep you from having fun, keep you from, you know, some enjoyment, some pleasure, some, some things that you have a right to, that you should be able to, and that, by the way, you're mature enough to handle, and uh, you should be able to do all of those things. That's, that's the deception, isn't it, of sin. That we believe that we can commit sin without consequences, that we believe that sin has no consequences ultimately other than it's lied to us. It promises enjoyment to us, but it brings death to us ultimately. And so... True to his word and his righteous character, what does God do? God responds to this treason with judgment on everyone, by the way, involved. He punishes each party according to their creation domain. And so even in God's punishment, there's order. God punishes each person involved in this story, but their punishment is in order to how he created them and their responsibility in creation. And so it's interesting because God does not just give one punishment across the board to each. He describes each punishment to each one and why they are that way. Because you see that even God in his design, his creation, 
has an order, and that order has a purpose. And so um, the serpent's going to crawl on his belly. The woman will experience pain and childbearing and discord with her husband. Adam will be in conflict with Eve. The earth under his rule is now cursed. And while the ground belongs under Adam's feet, Adam will eventually find himself six feet under the earth, as will every, every human who comes from him. So for this reason, Scripture roots the human problem of sin and death back to Adam and then to each one of us. So sin enters into the world, we said Romans 5, 12, as by one man and death by sin. And so in this way, death came to all people. It's why people die. It's why um, bad things are happening in this world. It's why sickness. It's why disease. It's why deformity. Uh, it's, it's, that's the reason why. It's because of this, uh, this moment. And so we are now understanding uh, this new normal where God stands against humanity and that we live in a corrupt and condemned place. And so God's good creation is now corrupt. So when the relationship between God and humans breaks down, everything else falls apart, the rest of God's creation. So the world after the fall, after sin, is not the same. The setting of the Bible story is no longer the good creation. Remember Genesis 1 and 2? God made it and it was what? Good. And at the end of it all, it was very good. It was perfect. And then the setting even of where humanity now will live out the rest of its, its life is now not in the same setting. It's now no longer in this good creation, but now it's in this fallen creation and marred and distorted by Adam's choice and, and really by our ongoing sin because it's not just Adam's sin that has consequences. It's all of our sin that has consequences, right? So my sin and your sin are contributing to the fallen world that we live in. Everyone's sin is contributing to the fallen world that we live in. And so the effects of the fall are immediate and they're long-lasting. So God's good creation is now corrupt. All people since Adam now enter this world, the Bible says this, in Adam. That's how we enter into the world, in Adam. And he says this, in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. And so when we're born, we're born in Adam under the guilt and the pollution of sin. And humans created to rule over the earth now experience the earth turned against them in the form of hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis and fires and volcanoes, wild animals. And in Adam, we do not rule or reign the creation. It, it runs rampant and out of control. Um, but the effects of sin's curse run deeper than deadly disasters in our world. Sin also corrupts the very fabric of the material world that we live in. Children are now born with mental and physical disabilities, living under the curse of corruption. Human sin has mutilated the entire created order. Some think of sickness and death as natural, but biblically, sickness and death are unnatural. Um, there are ab abnormalities, which are all departures from God's original design for humanity. And so we resist death because we were created to live, but cemeteries remind us of Satan's lie and the truth of God's word. The wages of sin is what? Death. So we think about the world that we live in, and let's pick up the text I mentioned, Romans chapter 8, in light of that. Um, 
and look at verses 19 through 23. So Romans 8, verse number 19. If you have it, go ahead and look at it with me. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. So creation subject subjected to this frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope, here it says, that the creation itself will be set free, liberated from its bondage. And we know that the whole creation, what does it say? It's groaning as in the pains, really, it's comparing the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And so Romans 8 is a profound commentary on the effects of sin on creation. Creation is screaming to anyone who will listen that sin is bad. God has cursed this world in response to our sin so that every awful thing that happens in this world, from disabilities to hurricanes, serve to us as a reminder that we are in rebellion against our Creator and that the condition of this world is no longer normal. And there needs to be someone who will set it all back according to its original design. And the creation itself, the Bible says, is awaiting and groaning for that moment, desiring to be set right or for peace to come. And by the way, isn't that what everyone at the core, when they're asked what they desire for the world, what do we say? We want peace, right? We want peace. And there's a lot of people that the Bible says that before time are going to cry, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And they're going to have their peace treaties, and they're going to have their, their, their political peace and their fake peace. And all the peace that, that man makes, how many know that it's just a short time before they're at war again? They never have permanent peace. There's always just this temporary maybe rest or peace that mankind creates before we end up going at each other and killing each other again. I mean, it's just, it's just the nature of the world that we now live in that's fallen. And so... God's good creations corrupt, and there's these ominous clouds on the horizon. In the beginning, God created. That signals the beginning of time, and Adam's tragic choice signals the movement of history from its beginning to its end in judgment. So in Adam, we're born guilty and under the sentence of death, and judgment awaits all of us unless God graciously chooses to redeem us. So thankfully, how many are glad this story is not over? Because if it ended here, boy, it would be tragic for all of us. And by the way, fatalism and much of Hunism teaches really that the world that we now live in, we can make a better place ourselves, and we can redeem it ourselves through our own actions, through our own good works, through our own doings, And we can even redeem ourselves, but ultimately, there's no God, there's no consequences, 
And everything that we're doing really is enveloped in this life only because after you die, there's no God, there's no afterlife, there's no consequences. You're just living in this world. And what a pointless existence that would be to live in the fallen, messed I mean, let's be honest. I don't care how positively you think. We have to make ourselves think positively because our world is a terrible place. It, it really is not a positive place. We can, we can try to positively spin things but the world's messed up. It's messed up. And, and, and families are messed up, and relationships are messed up, and life is messed up. And the truth is, is the only reason why I've found peace in the life that I have is because I found Jesus. And he's given me peace in the midst of a storm. But I'm still in the storm. We're still in the storm. The storm still rages around us. It's like the parable that Jesus gave of the two people that build their houses. And we've chosen as believers to build our house on the rock. And we're getting hit with the same wind and waves that everybody else in the world is getting hit with. It's just that our foundation is on Christ. And so we're standing amidst the, the blowing storms that are around us. And you know it just like I do. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. It's just as unfair for believers as it is for unbelievers. We, it, it's, not, it's not you get Jesus and your life gets really good. I mean, I think sometimes people have this idea of Christianity that if, you know, Jesus fixes all the world's problems. No, you still have to get up and go to work tomorrow, and you still have to pay your bills, and you're still going to get sick, and you're going to have hardships, and you're going to have to work out problems between you and other people. The difference is that you have Christ, and you have an example in Christ, and you have a spirit in Christ, and you have a new desire in Christ, and you're a new creation in Christ that's driving you to look for another world that's outside of this world, to know that this is not the end to know that this is just a temporary place and this is not our home and redemption's coming. And so I'm not going to get ahead of myself, but I'm glad the story doesn't end there. And the fact that God chooses to redeem doesn't minimize the truth that there's still coming a final judgment for sin. So the New Testament is clear about this. People, Hebrews 9.27, are destined to die. It's appointed unto man once to die and after that they will face judgment. That's what the Bible says and tells us. So everybody's going to die and everybody's going to stand and face judgment, by the way, for themselves. I'm not going to stand and face judgment for you and you're not going to stand and face judgment for me. You'll stand and face judgment for yourself. And so Peter writes of the day of which God will bring about the destruction in 2 Peter 3.12 of the heavens by fire and he talks about the elements are going to melt with a fervent heat. The Bible ends with the tragic destruction of humanity and Adam outside of Christ, Revelation 21. And although many people deny the coming of final judgment, the reality of our death is a constant reminder from God. So people can say there's no judgment, but we know people die. And, and, and I'll tell you this, as somebody who spends a fair share of their time in funeral homes with people that are mourning death, a lot of people who have a lot of things to say about life and death are pretty quiet on those days, especially when they have no answers. And it's interesting that most people say this, well, they're in a better place or they're at rest. And everybody wants to talk about heaven, but nobody wants to talk about how to get there. You know, the assumption is, is that we die and we all go to this place of rest. And by the way, even the place of rest is some fantasy, weird place. 
you know, everybody's like just, oh, you know, it's just like, you know, gl- we're glowing white, you know, it's, a, it's, it's just it's this weird fantasy thing that the Bible doesn't even describe to us as reality when really redemption is God making everything that's messed up now right later. In the end, heaven comes down. In the end, the creation gets made new and everything gets set back into order. We're not, we're not talking about being in a choir with robes for the rest of our life. I mean, I think we're going to do a fair share of singing, but we're going to do a fair share of living, friends, for all of eternity. And, and you know, we think about, you know, all of the world's religions have very weird ideas about the end of things, and really it has to do with the beginning of their story. And so it's important that when we look at the Scriptures, we understand the narrative that God is, is revealing or showing to us and the purposes that He's trying to teach us through them. And so the reality is, is that people die, and no matter who would say what they believe or don't believe, uh, that, that is a, something that everyone has to grapple with. And so human beings are frantic for a solution to death. Most people are looking to prolong their life, and a lot of people are afraid to die. And they don't know what's coming afterwards, and they speculate. And, you know, it's really nice, a really nice idea to, to propagate to people that it doesn't matter what you believe, and we all believe and make our own way to God, and, you know, everybody believes, and we have our own differences, but, you know, eventually we're all going to be you know, in some nirvana place, that's not what the Bible teaches us, and it's not in the nature of who, who God is for us to even embrace that as truth. It's, it's sad, but I think what we should embrace now in, in learning is opening our eyes to understand that the world right now is teaching us that there's consequences. I mean, it is. Go out and do something wrong and let the law catch up with you. How many know there's consequences? Uh, you can you can do what you want. I mean, everybody has the free will to do what they want. What do they say? You can, you can pick what you do, but you can't pick your consequences. You know, things, things are going to happen, you know, as a result of your actions and the things that you do. And the fact of coming judgment presents us with a deeply theological and personal question. And that is this. How can any of us escape the judgment of God given our sin? How can polluted sinners find acceptance with a God of perfect purity? How can the guilty escape condemnation before a God of perfect justice? And, and these questions of Scripture are inescapable for us, and thankfully there's good news that's yet to come. So what this does is this sets the trajectories for the storyline east of Eden. So let's consider these trajectories and where the story's going, because We've started with something, and we're moving in a direction, but where is the story in the narrative of the Bible as we travel east of Eden going? So Adam's fall changes everything, and working from the three trajectories identified in the story of creation, let's consider how they've changed because of sin. So we talked about the original trajectories of the world when God created them. Now let's talk about how sin changed those trajectories. So firstly, Adam is a failed prophet, priest, and king. So Adam traded the truth of the Creator's word for the creature's lie. And by the way, Romans 1 describes to us that many people today are doing the same thing. They're trading the Creator's truth 
for the creature's lie. Because the creature is now worshipped as the creator. And the Bible says it's because when they knew God, they rejected Him as God. They, they had no gratitude or respect for God. And they turned the creation into the creator and worshipped it. So um, that would be much of what we see philosophically in the world in humanism. And by the way, um, I, I was flipping through and watching just for a moment last night, and I, I don't know that I would encourage you to do this, but uh, they had the People's Choice Awards on. And I was just looking at, like, what are people choosing? And I was listening to the messages of people as they were, first of all, it was sad. But second, it was, it was not even helpful or hopeful. It was promises of hope and change and acceptance and a place for everybody with no action to get there, with no, no plan to do that. Um, it's the, and it's the promise of that. And, and also, the messaging is this. And, and, and I'm talking about in all the world's entertainment, we know. Why is the world's entertainment fall short? Because in the end, it all hangs on a lie that we can fix it ourselves. And all of the messaging is that. The hope's in you. The power's in you. Just do it yourself. You know, don't, don't, don't worry about what people think about you. You can do it. You can do everything. It's all in you. Humanism pervades every message in our society today, and it pollutes every mind, and it begins very young in our children's lives. And you look at what children think today, because of the lies that they're being fed, they're being taught that there is no creator and that they are their own creator. There's no purpose that a creator has made for them. There's no reason why even they were born, the gender they were born. There's no reason for why they are born, who they're born, and the family they're born to. It's all just whatever you want. It's live and let live. It's do as you want. It's whatever's in your heart, follow that. And here's what the Bible says to us. Don't trust your own heart because your heart is deceptive and desperately wicked and you can't even know it yourself. And your heart condemns you, but God's greater than your heart. And you can trust God's word, but you cannot trust your feelings. And you cannot trust your emotions and you cannot trust the narrative that's in this world. And it doesn't matter how well intended. See, I feel bad because I feel like a lot of the people who are trying to be good role models to our kids today in society and entertainment in some ways are even believe that they're motivated well. They think in their minds they're doing the right things. But here's what the Bible tells us. Romans 1 tells us that they, they have a reprobate mind and they've just denied and shut God out of all of it. And so the best that mankind can do is all that we can do. And by the way, we're very limited, aren't we? We can't fix the problems in this world. And here's the truth. Um, prejudice, racism, division, hatred, these are horrible things in history and in our present day that we have to deal with and that Christians need to have a voice for as well. But here's the truth. We cannot point back to ourselves because if we're only left to ourselves, we're damning ourselves to our own selves because we cannot fix this problem. Only Jesus can fix this problem. 
Because in Christ, I learn how to love other people. In Christ, I learn the value of other people. Because when I accept that God created everybody in his image and likeness, then I respect and love people because they're made in the image of likeness of God. And, and God calls us to that. But we see the problems that even that religion has created in our world. And these are the hurdles that even the church has when they're trying to teach the truth because religion has done a lot of damage in the world. In the name of God, but not in truth. Because religion has become another system of man. Because religion is man working his way to God. But the gospel is God working his way to us. And there's a big difference between that because you can't work your way to God. God came to us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins because God wanted to redeem us to himself. And so Adam is now a failed prophet. He's unable to speak the truth. He's a failed priest because he's unable to stand in God's presence. And when Adam traded the glory of God's presence for the opportunity to become God, God's presence became a presence of holy wrath for him. And he becomes a failed king because he no longer has authority over the earth. And God's sovereign rule brought judgment. So the earth created for Adam to rule now rules over him. And isn't that the truth? What we were created to rule over now rules over us. We're now subjugated to the earth. The earth is more powerful than we are when we were made to rule over it. And Adam wanted to be like God instead of being with God. That's a big fault. He failed to keep his covenant responsibility. And so we see this failed trajectory. The second one is that the first marriage is on the rocks. So the Bible is ancient, but its description of our relationship problems is timeless. So Adam sins, he hides from God, then he blames Eve, right? I'm sure that went over well. So this pattern sums up so many of our own personal marital relational problems. In Adam, our human relationships have been warped and broken. So from our broken relationship with God flows trouble with one another. Many of us have derived our sense of love and relationship and acceptance through the bad examples of the people that have propagated us taught us. Some of you have grown up fatherless. Some of you grown up without parents. Some of you have experienced the hurt and pain of being abused by the people that are supposed to raise you and love you. And how many can see the perverted picture, the broken examples that originally were meant to, to typify God and our relationship with God, but now they break us away from God. And we were created for communion and in Adam, our human relationships, our broken relationship with God flows trouble with each other. And so a life of oneness and unity with God and with other human beings was the communion we were created for. But because of our sin, we're isolated. And what do we do when we sin? We hide, just like he did. We isolate ourselves from each other and we hide. Um, how many know the biggest problems that you have are your hidden sins? Why? Because you hide. With your sin, just, just like the, the, the kid that steals from the cookie jar, he's got the chocolate all over his face, and mom says, did you eat that cookie? No. Well, the, the evidence is there. 
It's no, in the face of evidence. No, denial, burying it. And by the way, it's just innate to it, to that child to do that. No one had to teach that child to do that. I mean, when we do things that are wrong, we hide it, we bury it. And my problems and your problems, the greatest problems we have, and the ones that enter into our relational problems are the hidden sins that you have. Because you hide, even in your own marriage, your, your sins from your spouse. And you think that your hidden sins from your spouse don't affect that relationship. But your sin infects every relationship because whatever sin touches becomes a battlefield. And it brings death. It does not bring joy. It does not bring peace. And we hide, and we hide from God, and we hide from each other. And sometimes even the gathering of the church is an experiment of how well we can hide our sin and how much we can dress ourselves and how much we can make ourselves socially acceptable. I'm not saying that you need to come tonight and I'm not going to sit in a box and listen to you confess all of your sins, but you have an advocate with the Father and you have someone that you can go to and confess all of those sins and the hidden sins, which by the way, you're not hiding from him anyway. You know, he's saying the same thing to you and me. Where are you? Where are you? Who told you you could hide, by the way? Why did you think you had to hide? Why do you think you could hide? The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. You know, we, we usually practice the presence of God when we want God around. But when, you, when I sin, I don't want God's presence. Do you? I mean, do you picture God right next, next to you when you're sinning? No, we think he can't see us. He's too busy. You know, it, it's the humanist in us that thinks that we can hide from God. And we can't hide from God. But this is the breakdown in relationships because it's in all of us, and we hide. We may not use leaves to cover our shame, but we hide behind the leaves of our jobs. We hide behind the leaves of our pedigrees, of our good works. We hide behind the leaves of our attempts to justify and prove ourselves of pe as people of worth and value. Because we're self-absorbed, it's no wonder that our relationships with others are fractured. So nowhere is this more evident I believe personally, than in the intimacy of marriage. Because marriage was created to illuminate the love and unity that God has for his people. The good news that marriage was intended to typify is now distorted. Um, would you agree with me that in our society, marriage is not typically a good thing? Our kids are not looking at marriage as being something they're looking forward to necessarily unless they're growing up in, in a Christian culture where they're seeing good examples of marriage, by and large, people look at, you ever see the T-shirt? Marriage is what? Game over. You know, it's where, you know, you gotta, you got to live as a single person as long as you possibly can before you tie yourself to one person because as soon as you're tied to that one person, you're now, you can't, you can't express yourself anymore. You can't. You can't derive pleasure from anybody that you want anymore. Now you're, 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 what a, what a bad view. Thinking that so many young people are wasting their youth living for the sins of this world, the pleasures of this world, and they're not learning the lessons that marriage teaches. And the picture in, in, in Christian marriage that God teaches us and how to love each other and how God loves us. And so, if you're married, you know the truth is that marriage has taught 
you more about you than probably any other relationship. And as the story continues to unfold, marriage will still function as a picture of a relationship with God because God tells us in Ephesians 5 that what? Marriage is a picture of, of Christ and his church. But our sins of infidelity and unfaithfulness now reflect our awful sin against the God who is worthy of all of our love, devotion, and trust. And what does marriage actually show us? That even at our best, we're still unfaithful. I mean, think about the religious elite that Jesus spoke to. We haven't committed adultery. We're not born of fornication. They said stuff like that to Jesus. What did Jesus say to them? You ever look at a woman to lust after her? You committed adultery in your heart. You, th- you, think you're, you think you're unscathed. You think you're not involved. You think you're perfectly faithful on the outside because you're like a white sepulcher. You're just a painted cemetery. You're a painted tomb. You've washed the outside of the cup, but you've disregarded the inside of the cup. Who, who wants to drink from a cup that was only washed on the outside? And that's what he's pointing out. You wash the outside, but you ignore the inside because you can't cleanse the inside. Only God can. And you know inside you're just dead man's bones. Boy, Jesus had some heavy words for the religious people, didn't he? But thankfully, this is not the end of the story. And then the trajectory continues for us because we see that rest is lost. Remember, in the end, the trajectory of the story of creation was that God showed us in the Sabbath day that God rested not because he needed to rest as if he was tired, but because when things are good, God rests in the goodness of what he has done. He set himself and, and gave the example to us that there's rest that's found in that, and that rest is found in him. You know, rest, really true rest, rest for our souls is found in God. It's found in Christ. So when God finished the work of creation, he rested. That day, which had no morning or evening, was blessed and made holy. It was a glorious day that signified our triune covenant God entering into the joy of his creation and into the covenant relationship with his creatures. Yet because of Adam's sin, we no longer experience that rest. The Sabbath day was broken that day. Covenant relationship with our glorious God is the goal of our creation. By the way, when Jesus showed up, what had the religious done with the Sabbath day? The day of rest. Wasn't very restful, was it? I asked... uh, one of the uh, rabbis one day, I was talking to him at Lakewood, and I asked him, because he said that his favorite thing to study, well, he was in rabbinical school, he wasn't a rabbi yet, was the laws of the Sabbath. And I said, isn't the Sabbath supposed to be about rest? And he said, yes. I said, well, how many laws do you have for the Sabbath? And he laughed, because there's literally hundreds of laws. I said, how in the world could you get up on a day meant for rest and focus on God and ever focus on God if you had to keep every single one of those rules and laws. And then I said, also in a society, wouldn't it then also cause you to focus on each other and whether everyone else was keeping the laws and no longer focus on God? And he said, yeah, that is a problem. And I said, isn't it interesting that most of those laws God didn't even give? They're laws that were created around. I mean, they accused Jesus of sinning on the Sabbath. 
Jesus never sinned. Jesus didn't break God's law. He broke their law. And their law was a problem. And when Jesus did things on the Sabbath, it was to prove that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. And he was the creator of the Sabbath. And he wouldn't play him by their rules. And they, didn't, they rejected him because of that, because he didn't play by their rules. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to rest. But he was showing us that there was no rest apart from his redemption. Because we cannot create rest for ourselves, no matter how intricate, no matter how legislated, no matter how much we regard the day. You know, in Ocean Grove, they used to close the gates on Sunday. And you couldn't drive your car. You had to walk. It was told that there was a president that visited, and I'm not sure which one, but they made him park outside of the gates and he had to walk in because there was no driving on the Sabbath day, on Sunday, on the day of worship. And while I'm not mocking that or saying that there's anything wrong with that, it's interesting that a lot of people look back to the good old days of worship and Sunday as being those days. And really, those are just other derivatives of how we make ourselves, if you would, unrestful on a day where we worship God. And we make things about, and I think we should revere, I think we should respect, I think we should honor God. Um, I know my dad personally, my dad would never go anywhere on Sunday that caused anyone else to work. So he wouldn't get gas on Sunday, he'd get gas, I remember, Saturday night, he's getting gas. Why? Because he was not getting gas on Sunday. Wouldn't go to a restaurant on Sunday. We weren't going anywhere because he said, I'm not working on Sunday, so I'm not doing anything to make anybody else work on Sunday. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible teaches that that's what you have to do, but I learned that there was something special about Sunday from my dad. And that's what he did. As long as I've known him, that's what he did. Um, so it's interesting when we think about our worship to God and our rest in God, that sometimes we try to create this experience of rest that can't be found in the ways that we rest or the ways that we do things. Because you guys can, you guys know this, you could sit on the most beautiful beach in the world and not have peace. Peace is not where you are. Peace is what's in you. You know, if you have turmoil in you, how many know it doesn't matter where you go, it doesn't matter what your surroundings are, it doesn't matter what your environment is, the turmoil, the unrest in you is going to follow you everywhere that you go. And we try to, you know, people are popping pills for sleep to get rest, but rest only comes from God. And a covenant relationship with God is the goal of creation. But now we're alienated from Him, and the world we live in is a restless and unfulfilling place in every way. So we need God to act in grace to save us to recover the rest that we have lost and to be restored to the purpose of our creation. So the first human couple walked out of the garden of God's presence under a cloud of shame. They were banished, and so are we, by the way. East of Eden stand cherubim. The Bible says a flaming sword flashing back and forth to block us from the garden and the tree of life. And how can we regain access to the garden? Will we taste again of the tree of life? Well, thankfully, again, the Bible story does not end here. Our creator, covenant God, has not left us to ourselves. In the story that follows in verse 15 of chapter 3, God will make 
saving promises and repeatedly give his people a word of hope. God does not leave us without hope. In keeping his promises, access to his rest will come again. God will reestablish his covenantal promise with his people. He will remove our sin and reestablish his rule. But the question is left to us as we finish tonight, how? How will he do that? And we find that in redemption in chapter 3 and verse number 15. We're out of time tonight. This is where we're going to pick up next week. We'll pick up in Genesis 3.15. We're going to talk about a story full of promise and the redemption that we see. And again, these are the trajectories for all the stories as we go through the law and the prophets and the gospels and the rest of the scriptures uh, because they all tell a singular story um, from fall, from, from old creation and fall to redemption and new creation. In the end, um, we can see one narrative, one story. And by the way, it's all about Christ from beginning, beginning to end. And so um, while the Bible sometimes is daunting to us, um, if we think of it in terms of that, in understanding what the Bible is and why it's given to us, it helps us to rightly divide it, to understand it, to never think of a story in the Bible as being removed from the bigger story that every story within this story ultimately tells a story of how God is redeeming us to himself through Christ. And he's telling that story over and over and over and over again, whether it's the story of Moses or Abraham or David or Esther or Ruth. He's telling the same story of redemption over and over and over again through these lives to teach us about himself and ultimately our need for him. And that's the wonderful truth of the scriptures. And every time we open up the Bible, What unlocks the Bible is Jesus. Because if you take Jesus away from a story, you only have a historical story and these characters within the story. But if you put Jesus where he belongs in that story, because it's ultimately about him, boy, that story actually has so much more meaning because everything that happens that God discloses in it points us to Jesus. Because if we're only left to Moses or David or Esther or Ruth, we're lost because all of them ultimately fail. But... They make us long for the Savior who will come, who will not fail us, and who will ultimately redeem us. If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.